Well, today as we continue our series on Are You Ready to Rumble, we're going to look at exactly how to apply those last words of the song. How do we completely surrender or give ourselves to God? But as we apply that to our lives in this passage, there's a real challenge here. In fact, this passage is so familiar that I don't think we realize what a huge stumbling block it is, how challenging it is, how strange it is. In fact, there's parts of the Bible, I think, that people stumble over more than other obstacles of faith because they're like, I'm not sure I can believe in the God of the Bible because of what the God says in the Bible. I could give you passages that would make your head spin. Oh my goodness, what was God thinking there? And so we have to wrestle through those. And today gives us a passage that there's lots of great application, but there's a big elephant in the room. As we come to the final plague, God is going to kill off all the firstborn children of Egypt. The God of love, the God of mercy, the God we serve, the God we worship is killing off children in Egypt in order to bring about the exodus. What appears to be genocide, what appears to be unjust, what appears to be incredibly a horrific experience with wailing moms and dads. And if you've never wrestled with this, we're going to wrestle with it today. And if you've never struggled with it, I'm sure your kids or friends have. How can you trust a God who would do this? That was nice for the Hebrews. What about the Egyptians? How do we trust God's word if this is what he says he does? How do we trust the heart of the God who would allow this to happen? As I've wrestled with this over the years, I've realized there's really a way to frame this that helps us to better dig into it together. See, I think the question is not what kind of a God would deliver children unto death, as you're going to see Go ahead and put the screen up behind me. What kind of a God would deliver a child unto death? That's not the question. The question is, as we've seen in our series, there's a competition between the gods of Egypt and the gods of, of Moses. The question is not which God delivers these children to death. The question is which God is going to be able to protect these children from death? Which one can be the shield that will protect them from the destroyer that's going to pass by? That's the question we need to wrestle with today. It's not, next slide, the question is not what God would be capable of delivering children to death. The question is which God is capable of delivering children from death. That's the question that we need to wrestle with. That's the question I think is, is going to be at the forefront, which is that which God is capable of stopping this destroyer from coming against the people in Egypt. You see, God is going to warn the Hebrews and the Egyptians, something's coming tomorrow, and you've got to prepare yourself. God has given, through nine plagues, a clear demonstration that he is the one they should trust to protect them in their time of need. God says, none of the other gods are going to work. Don't trust them. They will not be able to protect you from what's coming. Trust in me. Put your faith in me. And yet none of them do. Perhaps an analogy would be helpful. Imagine you're living during medieval times, and there's a king. And the king says, we have fought some incredible battles together. And he comes over to the men. He says, now, most of those battles, we have worn our own leather mail, which is a kind of protection made out of leather. And that leather mail has protected us well against all the enemies we've had. And we've had these wooden shields. And these wooden shields have served us well in many, many battles. But friends, what's coming tomorrow, we're coming up against an enemy 
that has a type of weaponry that will not will not be able to defend yourself with a wooden shield and leather mail. If you're going to go up against the type of swords this enemy has, the kind of destroyer we're up against, you need to cast off your leather mail, cast off your wooden shields, and you need instead take my metal shield and put on my chain mail. As a soldier, you have a decision to make. You know, this leather mail served me well. This wooden shield will serve me well. Got a lot of nicks on there, marks on there. Am I going to trust that my leather mail and my wooden shield will protect me? Or am I going to put my faith in what the king has said? That there's something coming that only his chain mail can protect me from. That only his shield can protect me from. It's going to be a matter of faith. Do you believe the king or don't you? Do you trust in your protective mechanisms or the king's protective mechanisms? Will you put on his chain mail? And the stakes are incredibly high. Because God says, if you do not put on my chain mail, the firstborn in your house is going to die. So please put it on for the sake of your family, for the sake of your faith, and for the sake of your future. And this passage outlines three ways that we, how we put that chain mail on, called the Passover, that will protect you from the destroyer, and three reasons why you should put the chain mail on in order to protect your faith, your family, and your future. First, how do we put the chain mail on? Well, it begins in verse 17 of chapter 12 and says this. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. On the same day, I have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout all your generations as an everlasting ordinance. Look at this, throughout all your generations. I want you to continue for generations. This is going to point to something that's ultimately significant. Now, the feast of unleavened bread is one of the many feasts of the Jewish calendar. And it was actually the beginning of a seven-day period of time that culminated with the Passover. It begins here. The reason it was called unleavened bread is because God says, I'm going to deliver you so fast, don't, don't bake bread with yeast in it. You will not have time for it to rise and cook it. Well, later on, this feast of unleavened bread becomes a symbol of a spiritual house cleaning. As you were preparing for Passover, you would go through your house and you would go look for any leavened bread. Anything that rises, and you take it out. And sometimes it would be a very fun experience for the kids and grandkids. You'd come together on the first day and say, we've got to get all the yeast out of the house. You'd go gathering around and collecting all the yeast, and you'd put that together and get it out of your house. But then for the next six days, it was a very spiritual experience, because leaven is a, a metaphor used in the Bible of sin, that you would begin to go through your own life. Scrounge around your life for seven days and say, what do I need to be forgiven for? Oh my goodness, there's some secrets here. Oh, there's some unthankfulness here. There's some impatience here. And you begin to have a time of confession preparing for Passover as you're preparing for God's deliverance, a reminder of his forgiveness for all the things in your life. Well, this often began as sort of a fun family uh, activity. And so it could be a festive gathering at the beginning of unleavened bread. You bring the kids and grandkids together and you say, all right, there's leaven in our house. We need to get rid of it. And so, in fact, we're going to play a little Jewish, Jewish music here in just a moment. You get a feel for it. And there is leaven hidden in the room right now. So look under your pews. Look around you. We've got to get all the leaven out. Let's go ahead and play the music. Let's see if we can get all the leaven out of this place, as you might have. And raise your hand if you find one. We've got to get the leaven out of here. Some leaven. I see one over here. All right, we've got 11 here. All right, some are a little hard because we used them last night. Get some leaven out. There you go. There's one there. I'll pass that one down. There's a piece of leaven. Let's get that out. Got to get all the leaven out of the house. Up oh, here's another one. Pass that down. Here we go. Some leaven. You want to put that in there? Good. Got some in the side. Great. Let's get the leaven out. Get all of it out of our house. 
All right, you want to pass that one down? Anyone else? Raise your hand and get some more loving. Oh, one over there. Great. Looks like we have one more. Two more. All right. We've got to make sure we get it all out. So you and your grandkids will be running around saying, we've got to get all the leaven out. And then the kids will say, what's this about? And you say, this is what confession's about. You wander around. You look. You search. You dive. And then you take it out of the house. And you literally get all the leaven out of your house. And the kids and grandkids, at the end of that, there would be a teaching time. You'd say, now, in the same way we just did that in a fun way, we're going to spend the next few days looking for leaven in our home and looking for leaven in our heart. And the Passover is God reminding us he's going to forgive us for all the leaven in our life. And because of that grace and because of that promise of his forgiveness, we can get real serious about bringing our secrets out, bring our brokenness out. Because we want to know that he will be our chain mail. He will protect us. We don't need to use our old leather mail pretending that we're perfect. We're not perfect. The chain mail of God allows you to be very serious about confession, very serious about finding the brokenness. And that's the first step of putting on God's chain mail. We need to examine our homes in the unleavened bread. And later on as application, our hearts for leaven. For seven days... No leaven shall be found in your houses. None. Search, search, search. None shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off. See, God comes in his justice to to punish evil. And so you want to actually bring all the evil out of you, confess that before God, so you're not cut off from his presence, whether he is stranger or native in the land. Now notice, whether you're a stranger or native land, the, the Egyptians were well welcomed to be part of this process if they wanted. You shall eat nothing, no leaven, nothing unleavened. In all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. Now, have you ever gone to clean your house or hire somebody to clean your house or asked your teenager to clean the room or your spouse to clean the house and they didn't clean the way you thought they should? That's like a daily experience at our house, and I'm usually the one on the receiving end of not doing it well. And you say, what about those cobwebs over there? What do you mean you cleaned your room? Look at this. There's a difference between cleaning and camouflage. Look at this. We picked this up here. This is you hiding the stuff under the bed. This is not cleaning. Well, God says his expectation is that as followers of God, we would look at the cobwebs, look under the room, not camouflage it, not pretend, but bring it all out into the open, that there would be no unconfessed leaven, nothing that we're not bringing into his presence. One way to do that is at the end of your day or in preparation for communion or, or, or in preparation for prayer is just sort of replay your day. You sort of at the end of your day, pray through what happened today and say, God, search me. And show any evil within me. What are some ways, things I should have said that I didn't? What are some things in which my attitude, I was really bitter here or fearful here? And replay your day with God and ask him to bring stuff out that you can confess. It's a powerful discipline in how you put on God's chain mail. The second thing is God said, after you examine your heart, I want you to pick out your very best. Moses called the elders and said to them, pick out your lambs. Take your lambs for yourself according to the families and kill the Passover lamb. Now keep in mind your lambs were your money. That was your business. That was your commodities. So this was a financial assessment. As you came to Passover, you would look over your company. You would look over your bottom line. You'd look over all your herds and your sheep. And God says, I want you to pick out your very best for me. 
Now, you'd be tempted as you went through all the different lambs, because remember, these lambs are like a company, right? It's like a, it's a production thing. Out of each lamb could come more lambs. So you're giving up, picking out your best one, the best possible genes, the best possible offspring? Yeah. So as you went through your finances and went through your company, you'd pick out not the one with the bum eye, not the one with the lame leg. You'd pick out your very best lamb. And the reason you would give God your very best was a way in which you're putting on God's chain mail. I'm not trusting my money to be my security, my leather mail, my shield. No, I'm going to give God my very best, knowing that he's going to give me his very best. God is going to protect me with his chain mail and his shield and his Passover. And so I can give God my very best because my money is not my security God's grace and God's provision is my security. So part of putting on God's chain mail is really taking a financial inventory of your life and giving God your very best. And here's the incredible deal you get in grace. When you give God your very best and he gives you his very best, he then says, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to take your very worst, all that stuff you confessed and stuff you actually didn't even know to confess, And though you give me your worst, I'm still going to give you my best. Forgiveness and mercy and a new identity. That's the power of grace. Which is why when we talk about responding to God and to his act of Passover, it's always an attitude of the heart that affects your finances as well. It's a grace-motivated financial giving, which is part of the process. I remember my last church, we had a very broken, broken, broken view of motivating people financially. A lot of guilt, a lot of shame. There's an expectation on us staff that we're supposed to take volunteers out to lunch. Guess how, look at their giving records. Guess how much they made for a living. And then guess if they're giving 10% and manipulate the conversation to talk about their giving. I never mind talking to people about spiritual growth and giving certainly part of that. But this sort of manipulative guilt-based thing, I'm like, I'm not going to do that. Delighted to meet with people. Delighted to encourage people to reflect on the grace of God as a motivation. But I'm not going to guilt or strong-arm people. Well, it came to a head because we had a staff member who I had hired, and he still had a house back in his old hometown. And the transition time, he hadn't sold his house. He was really stuck, not able to make his obligations between the two uh, houses. And the senior pastor was pushing on me. He's not giving at all. He's not tithing at all. How can we be a good example if, if we as staff aren't giving? I'm like, well, the guy's stuck between two houses. How about we let his yes be yes and his no be no? I'm sure once he gets out of this, he will. That's unacceptable. Sort of guilt-based... Um, no compromise, spirit of the law, letter of the law. And ultimately, he said, I had to fire this guy. I'm like, I, I'm not going to do that, not over this motivation, and I don't want to be out of submission to you, but I just, I cannot, I, I can't do it. So they ended up firing him, and I was just distraught because it wasn't just this one person. It was sort of a symptom of the bigger problem. And I remember I was so frustrated. One of the ways I dealt with that frustration is I went to Home Depot. Always a good way to deal with frustration. And I bought enough wood to build a double-decker deck in my backyard. And I remember just being so angry. And I'm pounding and building this deck together, one side with the hot tub, the other side with uh, um, so it came out of our porch. And, uh, and I'm building this thing, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, I do not want to be in a place that sees people as a means to money. I want to be in a place that reflects people on reflecting the grace of God. And that ends up impacting their attitudes, their hearts, and their money. And what I was wrestling with is, you know, should I have spoken up more? Was I insubordinate? Was I fearful? Was I not courageous enough? And then I really wrestled with, do I belong here? Because <laughs> this is so incompatible with the way I see God motivating grace. 
Well, long story longer, I, um, <laughs> that became the very weeks that we heard about a church called Horizon. And so we came up here for spring break and we heard about the vision of the church. We heard about the, the, the two service design. We, we heard about the commitment to excellence. But we really heard a place that really wanted to focus on grace. And the giving was a big part uh, of, of folks who were giving regularly what we were doing. But it was really motivated by turning people toward what Christ did and then allowing that to be the response. That was one of the many things that really resonated with us. It's interesting because over the years, sometimes you react to one thing, so you react so much, I don't want to be that guy, you know, the guilt-based, strong-arm-based. But sometimes my weakness is I don't communicate needs. So folks will say, we we have a very generous congregation. And they'll say, yeah, but I know you don't need anything because you never talk about it. Oh, okay, well, that's not right. And so sometimes, you know, sometimes in my reacting to that guilt-based, I don't talk about sort of what the needs are. In fact, I mentioned four or five weeks ago that... um, we were looking to raise, but, you know, we're looking for anyone who felt called to help us with the motors. Because at Easter, people said, it's so great that the, the motors went up. Why don't you do that all the time? Because well, it breaks 20% of the time, and then the next two services are wrecked. And they said, you mentioned that a few weeks ago, and then we did it for Easter. Somebody must have uh, given the money. No, we just decided to risk it. it. It worked for Easter. But we definitely have financial needs. Let me just take two minutes and give a quick little financial uh, picture of the church. Because we definitely have a very expensive mission. We do not. God doesn't want your guilt money, but he does want grace-motivated money. So we have a, a $3.3 million budget uh, annually. We give that toward 30% toward services, 20% toward children, student, and family ministry, 20% toward facilities. We have no debt on this building, so that is only operational costs with no mortgage, part of the financial generosity of folks for the last you know, 10 years. Our adult ministries is 16%. Our administrative costs is 14%. In case you're wondering, our average uh, attendance, we have 1,100 people in the chapel every weekend. We have 285 in our East Station Children's Ministry, 150 in middle school, and 100 in high school. And so where does that money come from? It comes from individual families who say, I am so impacted by the generosity of God that I want to go through my flocks and give financially. Now, right now, we, we end our fiscal year at June 30th, and so we're sort of in the last phase. And so every year, the elders and staff uh, pray together. Um, the elders, we actually go together on a, a day of fasting and prayer and pray about where we think God's heading us, what are the ministry objectives, or the areas we should prioritize. So last year we did that, and we set this budget based on that. And right now, the generosity of our church continues to just be incredible. But we are down about 6% as we head into the new year. Now, we're managing that well, but there's some things we're trying to decide. Should we cut, or, Chad, have you just not a good job of communicating the need? So this is me saying, hey, if I have indirectly said we don't need um, your giving because I don't want to be motivated by guilt, we do need that. In fact, above and beyond that, many of you travel a lot and say, I wish I could see the services online. We're looking at, uh, besides the 6% uh, gap that we have for this year, we really feel like God's motivating us and stirring us up to put in a full video production camera system so that we can have all of our services online and video next year. That's about $135,000 purchase, not including the personnel required to run it, volunteer and staff. Or if you say, boy, I wish those windows were open, how could I help with that? That's about a $15,000 purchase to replace all the motors because all the motors are in the wall and they have to be taken out and replaced. So in case you thought, well, I just didn't think you needed my money, because I know many of you are generous to lots of things. You said, I didn't think about giving to Horizon because I didn't think you needed anything. That is definitely part of what we feel like God's doing in our mission here. So that little family matters over. Um, the motivation, though, is always God gives his best, and I say, well, then I want to give a percentage of my income. I want to become progressively more generous. I want to make his bride, the church, one of my many priorities. So we examine our hearts. We give God our very best. 
And then second thing we do is that we dip and paint. We apply that victory, that new identity, that generosity of God onto our own hearts and lives. It says you shall take a bunch of hyssop. I'll tell you what hyssop is in a moment. You'll dip it in the blood that's in the basin from your Passover lamb, your very best you gave God. And you'll strike the lintel in the doorpost with the blood that's in the basin. You're going to identify, I'm putting on God's chain mail to protect me against whatever's happening tomorrow. In the same way that as Christians, we every day we dip ourselves and say, God, I am going to identify myself based on what you've done for me. Not my status, not my fame, not my kids' obedience or disobedience. I'm going to find my identity today in who you are and who you've made me to be. It's a daily discipline. The discipline of confession, the discipline of generosity, and here is the discipline of identifying yourself with the work of Christ. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. Now, as I mentioned, the Egyptians were given a chance to do this. But this was so counterculture that you're going to find out that none of them do it. Because if you look at the Egyptian pantheon, all of their gods, or a lot of them, are a combination of humans and animals. Egyptian body, human body, alligator head, human body, bird head, human body. What's another one? Um, that's a couple of different birds, a flamingo head. And so the idea of killing an animal and putting its blood on your door was so offensive, so offensive to the Egyptians. That's like saying you're killing one of our gods and putting it over top of you. Well, that's sort of what God was saying. Your leather mail, your gods aren't going to protect you. You need to dip and paint your life with a lamb that points to the ultimate lamb that will die for you. Now, hyssop was an interesting... It's like growing up in the Midwest, we had a lot of monarch butterflies that hung out near milkweed. It looks a little bit like milkweed. You would basically take this thing of hyssop, break it off, and you would actually use it as a paintbrush, and you'd use that to paint your door. So you'd come up the, the day before the Passover. God, we did the unleavened bread, and now we're painting. We are trusting you, not our good works. We're trusting you, not our good deeds, to be our chain mail about what's coming. You will be our protector. You will be our identity. So three ways we put on the chain mail. We confess our leaven. We give our very best because we're trusting him that he's going to give his very best. And we dip and paint our very identity, our very protection for our family, into the blood of the Lamb, which ultimately points to Christ. Now, why should we do this? And here's where we get back to our dilemma. Why should we put on God's chain mail? Well, number one, we all need a capable Savior. Key word here being capable. There's lots of options out there. Back to our main premise. Which God is capable of delivering your children from death? Which God will you trust who will be capable to save you from what's coming? That's the real question of the text. The Lord's going to pass through to strike the Egyptians... And when he sees the blood, the chain mail that he gave to you, that he prescribed to you, on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will, and here's where the term Passover comes for, will pass over the door. It will pass over that chain mail and you will not be hurt. And here's where it gets really interesting in the next verse. And not allow the destroyer. Now, do you see how the destroyer is distinct from the Lord? The Lord's passing through, but there's actually a destroyer that's doing the killing. So maybe it's not that God comes in. Maybe God actually allows this destroyer, this satanic force, to come in and kill anyone who's trusting in satanic gods. It's not clear. But what is clear is whatever the destroyer is, only God's chain mail that he tells everyone to put on will be a capable savior in the circumstance. 
When the destroyer comes into your houses to strike you, you shall observe this thing, this, this, this chain mail, put it on, the Passover. And make this an ordinance for you and your sons forever to remember what I've done, that I was the capable Savior. It will come to pass that when you come into the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised, keep this service. Keep celebrating this. Keep remembering why this is important. So let's address the issue again. Why is it fair that God will allow these Egyptian families to lose their kids? A few quick philosophical things. Number one, let's remember God is punishing evil people who have kept his people in bondage for 400 years, twice the time of our nation's history. It's a long time for God to be patient. Two, this is a group of Egyptians that have actually killed off generations of two-year-olds and younger by throwing them to the alligators. These are not innocent people. These are actually mass murderers. Three, because of the age of accountability in Christian theology, any child that doesn't reach the age of accountability where they can know right and wrong God's blood covers them that we see them in heaven as well. Four, the reason you and I killing somebody is wrong is because we're not the author of life. We're taking something that doesn't belong to us. When God takes life, it's moral because God is the one who's the author of life. He can take back what belongs to him at any time. Five, he gives a warning to both the Egyptians and the Israelites to trust in him. Everyone has opportunity. And he spent nine plagues building a case to why they should not trust the incapable saviors of the Egyptians, but should trust him to be the capable savior in this case. What else can God do? Just to show you an example, I'll show you in a previous chapter where God warned the Egyptians so they had plenty of lead time. The Lord says to Moses, I'm going to bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Speak now in the hearing of all the people. Tell all the Hebrews, let every man, Hebrews, ask his neighbor, Egyptians, and every uh, woman and her neighbor, ask your Egyptian neighbors for silver and gold. Hey, can I have some silver or gold? Why do you need my silver or gold? We're leaving tomorrow. You're leaving tomorrow. How's that going to happen? Well, there's a plague of death coming, and we're going to be putting blood on our door, and God's going to deliver us, and if we don't have the blood on our door, we're not going to be able to protection. You ought to do that too. Put blood on my door. Well, you really need this. It's going to be bad. Well, that's fine. And bizarrely, Egypt has been so destroyed, the Egyptians say, take the money, take the silver. If you're out of here, get out of here. You've brought so much pain and devastation to our country. We don't want you anymore. But I will not trust your God and I will not put your blood on my door, that is just ridiculous. Now, there's more evidence that the Egyptians were warned. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Oh my goodness, these Hebrew people, they've really been beat up, and oh my goodness. So they had favor enough that they're giving away their money, but not their hearts. Isn't that interesting? They'll finance God's work, but their heart doesn't trust God to put the blood on the door. Moreover, the man Moses, another note, was very great in the land of Egypt. Moses has got this incredible track record at this point. Oh, my goodness, this guy says something, it happens. He's carrying the stick that looks just like Thoth's stick, only what he says goes. Nine plagues, he says it, it happens. He says, go away, lice, they go away. He says, go away, frogs, they go away. So Moses has this incredible reputation, and so when he's communicating the Passover, I think all the Egyptians had an opportunity, either through the neighbors or through Moses himself, to know they should have trusted in this message. Next part of the verse. So Moses says, about midnight, I'm going to go into the midst of Egypt, says the Lord, and all the firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die. 
from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. And there's going to be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast. And here's why I'm doing this, that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. That you will know there's a difference between a capable Savior and an incapable Savior. And your whole life you've heard that all these Egyptian gods were capable Saviors. I've tried to prove it in nine plagues that they can't save you from anything. This will be the ultimate decision. Who is your capable Savior? And the Pharaoh will say, get out and all the people who follow you. And after that, I'll go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. So Pharaoh knows. The Egyptians know everyone has opportunity. Are you going to put on God's chain mail or trust in your own Egyptian leather mail? We need a capable savior in life. Number two, an inadequate sacrifice has consequences. If you choose to put your faith in a savior that cannot save you, there's going to be consequences to that. You can believe as much as you want that thin ice will hold you. But when you step on it, if it's thin ice, you will get wet. You will freeze. There is a consequence to putting your trust in an inadequate or incapable Savior. That's exactly what happens here. It shall be that when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it's the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. Why? Because we had a capable Savior. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Oh, thank you, God, that you're capable. Thank you that you did this. Thank you that we put our trust in you and you did what you said you would do. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. They trusted. They enacted. They put their faith in him. When you and I, not just for coming to Christ, but when we in our own lives put our faith in something to be our Savior daily, our status, our performance, our money, our fame, how people feel about us. Those are capable saviors. You define yourself daily based on something, your quarterly results, some number in your life. There's consequences to that because there's no number that will ever make you happy. Because whatever number you have, you could have done more. You could have helped more people. You could have uh, done better this quarter. You could have done better this year. And so when you put your faith, your confidence, your self of worth in something like that, Besides Christ, you end up wearing yourself out. The consequences are worry, anxiety, drivenness, perfectionism. You try and be perfect because you don't know in Christ you are perfect. There's consequences, even as a Christian, to having an adequate Savior or sacrifice. Remember, years ago we did uh, the free journey, and one of the lies I found in my own heart was been sitting in there for a long time. My sense of responsibility and wanting to be responsible is a strong value of mine. The dark side of that is this lie that I wrote in that journal that day. It's all up to me. Huh. I really believe that a lot of the time, don't I? It's all up to me. No wonder I wear myself out. Now, I wouldn't have said that on a Bible trivia question, but when I looked at how I lived, there was a sense of self-sufficiency. I had made my own efforts my salvation, and I was wearing myself down. Where the Bible says, apart from me, you can do nothing. I wasn't living like this. I was living like that. And I was feeling the consequences of my inadequate Savior that was me, 
versus him being my source of joy and peace and gentleness and self-control. When you become your own sacrifice, there's consequences to it. So the reason we've got to put on God's chain mail is because only his sacrifice will satisfy. Three, lastly, why do we put on God's chain mail? Because God gives us a choice. Either we can believe our saviors are capable. Oh, yeah, I can do it. Oh, yeah, 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 I'm a good mom. Oh, yeah, I'm a good dad. Oh, you see how many people like me. You can believe that your saviors are capable, and they'll work for a little bit. You can believe your saviors are capable, or you can receive his savior who is capable. I mean, if you're an Egyptian, you're thinking, look at all the saviors we got. Look at them all. Surely one of them can help us with this thing. Got this guy and this guy and there's Thoth and there's Budo. God says, you can believe that. You can believe your chainmail is going to do it. You can believe your, your saviors are capable, but they're not. Or you can receive my savior who is capable. It came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose in the night. He and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not one house, not one, who trusted God to be their Savior. There was not one house where someone was not dead. Because no one, despite all the evidence, despite all the opportunity, not one wanted to receive a capable Savior when they could trust in their own. Maybe this looks like I read an article by a New York Times writer named Benjamin Nugent who puts his faith in his writing. His writing became his savior. And here's what he says. When good writing was my goal, I made the quality of my work the measure of my worth. Look at that. It wasn't work just not a good thing. Writing is just a good thing. The quality of my work became the measure of my worth. It's my savior. For this reason, I wasn't able to read my own writing well. I couldn't tell whether something I'd just written was good or bad because I needed it to be good in order to feel sane. That's a savior. I lost the ability to cheerfully interrogate how much I liked what I'd written to see what was actually on the page rather than what I wanted to see or what I feared to see. His savior was his work. He needed God to rescue him. That's what Pharaoh finds. Then he, Pharaoh, having the consequences of an adequate Savior, called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise! Go out from among the people, both you and the children of Israel. Go! Serve the Lord God as you've said. Take your flocks and your herds as you've said. Be gone. Would you bless me also before you go? And the Egyptians urged the people and said, Get out of here in haste. We're going to all be dead if you stay here much longer. And the people took their doughs, dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in the clothes on their shoulders. How do we put on his armor? Confession. Giving. The discipline of spiritual warfare. Dipping. Your identity in Christ. Why should you do it? Because we all need a Savior, not just to get to heaven, but to live in life. And there's consequences to putting something else as the Savior in your life, even a good thing like work or family. And God will let you do it, or He can say, why not receive the one Savior who's capable?
The band's going to do a final song and invite them to come out. It's a song written by our team, actually. It's an original song that speaks about the power of having a God who rescues you. The power of having a God who not only loves you, but creates your very identity. The one secure thing in your life isn't going to be your works. It's not going to be your religion. It's not going to be your kid's behavior. It's not going to be your quarterly results. The only secure thing is not defining yourself by what you've done or not done, but defining it based on what God's done and what he will do. The God of the rescue.
Father, we thank you that you are the God who rescued us through the Passover that pointed to the ultimate Passover lamb that was Jesus. And Father, we come before you this morning in confession. We confess that we have found and glorified in our personalities, in our attitudes, in our work. We have found our identity in everything but you. So God, we confess those are idols in our life. And we ask you to take control of our hearts, take control of our minds, take control of our very identity, Father. Give us the freedom to search our past, to search our checkbook, to search our calendar, to search our reactions. And ask if we're allowing you to live through us, the fruit of your spirit to take hold of us. God, rescue us from ourselves and help us to live the life you've called us to live. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being with us today. If you came prepared to give us some offering boxes on the way out, if you knew the church, we'd love to put a name with a face. Third door on your left, the hearth room. We'd love to say hey. Thanks again for being here.